verses 24 through 28. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each, of, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As, as, even some of you, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." This past uh, Thursday evening, Mia and I had the privilege of sitting in some very austere, hard, concrete bleachers and watching our oldest grandson play football. He's eight, and that's obviously a very entertaining process to see a bunch of eight-year-olds playing football. But I couldn't help but thinking as I was sitting there that... Uh, you know, if, I'm, if I live old enough and, and the Lord delays his return, I may be watching some guys, these very guys on television playing for some of our colleges. My understanding is that we have some colleges here, right here in Alabama, that field teams, one across the campus. Who knows whether or not these guys, you know, might be playing college ball or even pro ball someday. I also have that thought occur to me when we gather here on Sundays and some of these young men stand up and they lead a song or read a scripture, uh, lead us in a prayer. And I'm thinking, except magnify all of that times 100, here are the leaders in the Lord's church. In a few years, these are the guys that will be standing up and, and leading us in our songs. They'll be the elders and the preachers in the kingdom of Christ. And I'm just saying that to you parents to compliment and to commend you and pat you on the back for what you're doing and training them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. These, these are the people who are not just the future of the church, they are the presence of the church as well. I want to begin tonight's lesson with a uh, sweeping observation that I think is true of no matter what age group that you might find yourself in, and that is very simply that nobody wants to be abnormal. Everybody wants to fit in. And I think that's one of the reasons why, as we talked about just a few weeks ago, peer pressure is such a tremendous thing, especially when you're young and much more suggestible to the outside influences of what people think about you, but it's, it's true really all of our lives. Nobody wants to be abnormal. You know, one of the least complimentary things that you could probably say about anybody is he's a nice guy, but he's a little strange. You know, I mean, nobody wants to be thought of that way. Our children learn that at an early age, and I'm sure that parents know that they use that quite often as a manipulative ploy because one of their most per persuasive arguments uh, to their parents to get them to purchase some item is everybody's got one, you know, and uh, the implication is if I don't have one, then that makes me abnormal, and we certainly can't have that. Well, the only reason that I ever wear a necktie is my attempt to look normal. Now, you can decide whether that it works or not, but that's the only reason why I, and I imagine any other man would ever wear a necktie. It doesn't keep me warm like my coat. It doesn't protect me like my shoes do. It just kind of hangs there and, well, chokes me. 
that is the only purpose that I have ever found for a necktie. But I wear it because in some situations it is normally expected. In fact, I, this may not be interested at all to you, but in the various places that I go and speak in, in summer series, I have found through experience, because I have a lot of, of congregations here in Alabama that I've gone to year, summer after summer after summer, I have noticed that uh, oftentimes none of the guys wear ties on Wednesday night. And so I've got little notations on my scheduling that says tie or no tie. You know, if, if I don't have to wear a tie, I'm not going to. But if, I, if everybody else is, I'm going to. I, I remember speaking at a congregation south of here one time or early, uh, my, during early in my tenure here. And I, I j- had just gotten out of my car. I may have told you the story. I'd just gotten out of my car walking across the parking lot. And some guy was very friendly came up to me, shook my hand, introduced himself. And he said, you must be our speaker for tonight. And I said, yes, I am. How do you know that? He said, you're the only guy here with a tie on, you know. So, uh, but again, it, no, there's really no practical value in wearing a tie except for the fact that you want to in those situations, you want to, you want to look and feel normal. Kind of reminds me of the old George, George Goble. How many of you remember George Goble? Okay, thank you. I feel better. Uh, he has a quote that says, I feel like a brown pair of shoes in a room full of tuxedos. You know, you don't want to feel that way. You don't want to have that, that feeling or that impression of yourself. Bottom line is that nobody wants to, nobody wants to be abnormal. Now, a few Sunday nights ago, we were talking about how that when we serve God, we do that without considering whether or not it is pleasurable. There is a temptation to try to justify and rationalize the Christian life by saying, well, there's pleasure in sin, but it's a lot more fun to be a Christian. That's the essence of the argument. And we need to realize that we should never attempt to try to justify the Christian lifestyle by a world view. Uh, that isn't the reason why anybody should ever serve the Lord, just because it is an abundant life and there is pleasure and there can be enjoyment that can be found in the Christian life. But even if it wasn't pleasurable, even if it meant that I lost my family and I lost my life, I still ought to commit myself to following the Lord Jesus Christ to the best of my ability all of my days. But like all principles that can can be misunderstood. It's a good principle to say we shouldn't serve the Lord because we would find it pleasurable. Because one submits totally to God, some have the idea that living as a Christian is on the opposite end of the spectrum, a, a dreary and a dull sort of life. They, they look at it as the absence, you know, the black hole of, of real fun. And anything that you might enjoy is kind of like when the doctor tells you, if it tastes good, spit it out. That's the way some people have the impression of, of living the Christian life. And, and they think of it in terms of a long list of all of those things that I cannot do now that I'm a child of God. And so it makes them feel, uh, if they were to sign on and commit themselves to that kind of life, that would make them feel com- completely abnormal and uh, so that's not what the Bible has to say about that subject. I want us to, to look at a few things tonight that will help us, I think, to appreciate that living the life is the most natural and, and normal thing that a person can do. That's why God has created us. That's why he put us on the planet. That's why we're here, to serve him, not to find temporary, passing, transient pleasure, but to really find our full satisfaction and our full fulfillment and meaning in life from serving our creator. In fact, in the conversation one time, and I referenced that this morning as I was announcing the subject for tonight, there was a sincere man who said to me, I would like to be a Christian, but I'm afraid if I did, I could not live a normal life. Well, allow me to point out 
that living as you were designed to live by your creator, by your designer, is the most normal and natural thing that you can do. Anything else would be out of harmony with the character and the nature of God. Look for a moment, if you will, at living consistently within the framework of God's design. And I want to illustrate that in a couple of ways that may look a little, sound a little silly, but uh, I hope they make a point. God created everything that we see around us. He created fish, and he placed within fish the need and the desire to swim through the waters and to be free. And if you even have a pet fish, you know that that's basically all they do. But wouldn't it have been cruel and out of character for a wise, loving God to design fish that with that need and that desire and then paralyze them or incapacitate them in such a way that they can't swim? That is, that they can't do what, in essence, they were designed to do. God didn't do that to fish. He created birds, and he created birds in a similar way, put in them the need and the desire to, to fly and to soar through the heavens. From time to time, if you're like Mia and me, we, we will look up and we'll see a hawk, or I assume it's a hawk, or it looks like an eagle sometimes. It's so big. I hope it's not a buzzard because that's good, bad news for us. But anyway... And you'll see them soaring, and especially just a couple of days ago when the cold front was moving in and all of the air systems were going on, and you could see them without even having to beat their wings. And you think, wouldn't that be wonderful to be up there soaring above the head? Well, God created them to do exactly that. Wouldn't it have been cruel and out of character for a wise, loving God to design birds with that need and that desire and then incapacitate them, make their wings in such a way that they're unable to do what they were designed to do. Again, I submit that God didn't do that either. Now let's take that and jack that thought up about a thousand times. God created man. And he also placed certain inherent desires and needs and I believe even ambitions within the human heart. He placed within us the need and the desire to enjoy life and to be free. And by free, I don't mean that by the world's standard. I mean by free, I mean to be emancipated from the domination of sin in our lives and to know what real liberty is all about. Remind you that Jesus was the one who said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And when we talked about worldviews, the Christian worldview versus the world's worldview a couple of Sundays ago, we, we talked about how that the world simply does not understand how that we interpret the Christian life as a life of freedom. But that really is what it's all about. Because when you look at the world and you see people who are sometimes so ensconced in a world lifestyle, they're maybe addicts of some sort or the other, and you think whatever that is, that is not liberty. That is not freedom. They do not have, in, in fact, sometimes it even seems as if their power of choice has been taken away while we know in reality that is not the case. But God created man with a desire to serve him, to fulfill his will in our lives. Wouldn't it have been cruel and out of character for a wise and loving designer to design man with that need and that desire and then to command us to live in a way that's unnatural and contrary to his design and needless to say, and the good news is, God didn't do that either. Now, allow me to submit as the premise for this study tonight that the Christian life is life's greatest serendipity. The word serendipity, by the way, I went back and did a little research because I've heard and used that word all of my life. But it was coined by a man by the name of Sir Horace Walpole back in 1754. 
when he wrote a piece about the three princes of Serendip, which is, by the way, modern Cambodia. There will be a quiz later. Write that down. But uh, Serendip was actually a place, and these princes were so attuned to life that they found great unexpected adventures while they were on their journeys on the mission of the king. While they were out traveling and doing what the king wanted them to do, they found all kinds of adventures and wonderful things, and that's where that word came from. The word came to mean the gift of finding unexpected valuable things while searching for something else. I submit that life is filled with serendipities. You may know exactly what I'm talking about from your own personal experience. History certainly verifies that. You may remember that Alexander Fleming in 1929 was researching influenza. He had a culture plate of staphylococcus germs under his microscope. But a gust of wind blew through the window and scattered some dust around. And after closing the window, he noticed that a speck of dust had blown onto his culture plate and at least the way he was thinking at the moment, completely ruined it. He at first thought that the experiment was ruined because the culture plate had been contaminated. He looked again. And as he looked more closely and then looked through the actual lens of the microscope, he noticed a bacteria-free circle around that dust speck. He found it to actually be a speck of mold. And thus began the research that wound up in discovering penicillin. It was a serendipity. That wasn't what he was looking for, but it was what he found nonetheless. And think of the benefit to humanity that has come from that discovery. If you know anything about our own American history and the history of the world, you remember that Christopher Columbus did not set out to discover America. He was looking for something else entirely. He was looking for a new trade route to China. But he discovered the land that you and I now live on. You can surely think of several serendipities in your own life. Perhaps it was how you met your mate. You didn't go out that day looking for someone to marry. You were certainly open to the possibility. I know I was in Henderson, Tennessee, in the dinner line at Gano Cafeteria, looking for supper when I found my wife. She didn't know it yet. It took weeks of stalking. I mean, it took weeks of, <laughs> of interest on my part. But I wasn't really looking for a mate that night, but what a serendipity. Perhaps how you got into your career was a serendipity. Maybe you prepared to do something else, but you fell into your career through a set of circumstances. Life's greatest serendipity, and I really believe this with all of my heart, and I'm not just saying this because I'm standing up here preaching to you tonight. I believe with all my heart that life's greatest serendipity is found in one verse of the Bible. And here it is, almost halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these material things will be added unto you. Now, if we could just tap into the wisdom and the depth of meaning in that one verse and see its applicability and, and what it can mean to us, potentially as followers of God, I, I think that we would agree that that's got to be life's greatest serendipity. Because, folks, if you attempt to find joy and peace and happiness, if that is the essence of your life pursuit, if that's what you want most in life, you're not going to find them. Because that's not how those things are found. By selfishly saying, I want to have peace and joy and happiness in my life, it doesn't work that way. In fact, you'll find that exactly the opposite happens, that the more you pursue those things, the more they will elude you. 
Those qualities of life come as a byproduct or a serendipity of serving God and seeking his kingdom first. And yet how easy it is for even God's children to buy into the thought process of the world and say, well, it just makes sense that if I want to have a a roof over my head and clothes on my back and food to eat, then that needs to be my first priority. No, no, no. No, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness must be our first priority, and then he will see that all of these things are at place in our lives. Now, if that's true, and I want to throw a little problem in here to kind of throw a curveball at this situation, and and Christianity brings that kind of peace and joy as a divine serendipity in our lives, why are there so many tense, unhappy religious fanatics? There are people across the globe right now who not only claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also they were very avid, and that's why I refer to them as, Christi- as, as religious fanatics, that they are very avid, fanatical almost, in their approach to religion. There is always the, the unbalanced who want to seek the extreme in every area of life. In politics, there are some who go beyond a normal and appropriate concern about the spread of communism, and they see a communist behind every bush and under every rock. They, they hear a communist plot behind every public utterance. In race relations, it's very easy to go to unreasonable extremes and to think that everybody of a certain ethnic group is either good on one hand or bad on the other. In sports, there are some who are fanatical, present company excluded, One man recently said to his wife, Honey, is there anything that you want to say to me before football season begins? There are some people who are fanatics about sports. Since religion is such a large, significant, basic part of life, it's not surprising that it attracts its share of extremists and fanatics. But that's not the spirit of the New Testament. That is not the result of properly following Christ. We are not fanatical in our approach. But we are followers. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. At least that's what he wanted us to be. And Jesus, I think, is is the perfect example in that respect as well. The Bible says early on in life, and this is recorded, of course, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. There, of course, Luke is recording and talking about the balanced and the well-rounded nature of of the Lord's development. He was not an extremist, but he was well-rounded in all of those areas. And, and you may remember that early on, in fact, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says in Acts, the second chapter, about that infant church, that one of the first descriptions of those early Christians reads like this, praising God and having favor with all the people, Acts 2, verse 47. So here was a church that was well-rounded. They were not extremists. At least early on, they even garnered the favor of the populace. The fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says in Galatians 5, through and 23, is love, joy, peace, patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Christians are commanded in Romans 12 and verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And so we as Christians are to, to live so that even when folks look at us, evaluate what we believe and think that maybe some of what we believe is kind of weird in their estimation. They don't really understand it. They will have to be impressed with what we have. And that is a fulfilled and joy-filled and peace-filled life. That should make some inroads and open some doors for the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. So someone asked, 
what about all the fun things that I'll have to give up when I become a Christian? Kind of began this discussion with that, and I want to come full cycle before we end. That's a fair question, and I really believe it's a common misunderstanding. To most people, their conception of what the Christian living is all about is what they will have to give up. To them, Christianity is a long list of fun things that God's people are not supposed to do. Now, I don't know where that idea came from. I think some of it just started with rumor. Perhaps it came from warped religionists. I, don't know, I do know this, though. It did not, watch this carefully, it did not come from the Bible. You don't have to give up. Listen to me carefully, church. You do not have to give up one single thing that's good for you in order to be a child of God. I'm going to say that again. You don't have to give up one single thing that is good for you to be a child of God. Oh, to be sure, there are definitely some things that we will have to give up when we become Christians. And the Bible talks about those things. We can't engage in those kinds of activities or lifestyles and hope to go to heaven. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 and a number of other places makes it quite clear that there are some things that God's people, once we have turned our backs on the world, turned our face to Jesus and the cross, that we will have to give up. Christians are known for the things that they stand for, but they're also to be known for the things that they will not stand for. But in being a Christian, you, you only give up those things that destroy you or cause you pain or unhappiness. You see, God is looking out for us, and he never says, thou shalt not, without doing that with the understanding that when we leave those things alone, the, I remind you that eight out of the ten commandments given by Moses when he came down from the mount were stated in negative terms, thou shalt not. But God is saying, in essence, when he says, thou shalt not, he is saying, do yourself no harm. That is, he's giving a regulation, a parameter in our lives that will actually help us to live joy-filled, peace-filled, and fulfilling lives. And so while you commit your life to him without consideration of selfish pleasure, you're not just asking, now what's in it for me? The fact still remains that God is responding by guiding us into the greatest life possible. If a man would love life and see good days, as we talked about this morning, you know, a very important principle, I think, is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Here's how John states his overall view of Christian living. And bear in mind that John was living at a time when Christians were just, I, I'm struggling for the right words, egregiously persecuted and suffered immense trials. All but one of the apostles died as martyrs because of their faith. That's what we're talking about. We weren't talking about, I hope we catch all the traffic lights on Atlanta Highway when we go to church tonight. We're not talking about that kind of suffering. We're talking about, I wonder if we'll make it home alive from services tonight, or if somebody will find out that we're meeting here and come in and kill us all. Now, maybe we've come more full cycle in our society than we would care to think, but that's what they were dealing with in the first century. And John wrote this in 1 John 5, verse 3, this is the love of God. Number one, appreciate the fact that John's emphasis is not on how tough things are. His emphasis is on how much God loves us. And maybe that's where our focus needs to be as well. But then he said, this is the love of God. This is the, the love that we then reciprocate and return to God by keeping his commandments. And then he adds this little addendum. And his commandments are not burdensome. There's not a thing in the world, John says, that God has commanded us to either do or to stop doing that is not the best for us in the first place. Allow me to illustrate. In this world... There are about 3.75 billion women. 
I know because I have done a personal count. 3.75 billion women on the planet. Now they come in assorted sizes, shapes, ages, colors, and dispositions. Out of all of those, God says that I am restricted to just one as a life companion and as a physical partner. Now, in essence, I may choose anyone I please as long as she is willing and as long as they're eligible to be married. But still, I can only choose one. And then I must live faithfully to her as long as we both do live. Now, why is that? Has God not unduly restricted me by saying out of 3.75 billion, you can only have one as a life companion? Isn't he just trying to rob me of the joys that all those other women would bring? The answer is absolutely not. It is for my benefit that those parameters are placed in my life and they are placed in yours as well. He who is the one who designed me knows that that is the only way that I can be truly fulfilled. I read a book years ago that has this quote, God did not create man to be a playboy among many women, nor women to be a playmate among many men. God planned and designed for us to be in a monogamous scriptural relationship with one man, one woman. That was his plan from, from the very beginning. And God, when he did that, had only our happiness in mind. That's the way it works. Now, the world won't tell you that. In fact, they will deny it to their dying breath. But that's what makes us free, free to have the deep abiding joys that can come only through a faithful Christian home and a committed relationship with one man or one woman. I am emancipated to have the fulfillment and the satisfaction that just everyone naturally yearns for. I can think of nothing on earth more valuable than a genuine Christian home, and it is available only to those who honor God's word. We know something that the world doesn't know. But I'm telling you this, church, we need to be getting the word out, don't we? And we need to help people to realize that this is not just a life where here's all the things you can't do anymore. No, this is the greatest life that you could ever possibly ever live. Why am I forbidden to drink alcohol as a beverage? Well, that way I'm free to have a longer, healthier, safer, happier life. Plus, I get to keep my career and my marriage and my health and my liver. Christianity, you see, is what we were designed for. It is not an unnatural lifestyle. On the contrary, folks, when, when, when your life follows the design of the divine designer, then it fits and it feels good. Finally, a fulfilled life is one of holiness and also wholeness, that's wholeness with a W. We, we have different kinds of needs. We all understand that. Those needs can be classified as, as physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. And if I feel a part of those needs and not the others, then I'm going to fit, find some temporary thrills in life, but I'm not going to be satisfied because I'm going to be incomplete. I have not, I have not met the certain needs in my life. I may have overmet some needs, but if I, unless I am meeting all of those four basic needs in life, I'm going to inevitably feel unsatisfied. You see, there's a difference in a fulfilled life and temporary thrills. Moses understood that difference, and I think that's why he is still revered and respected as the great man of faith that he was, even though he lived thousands of years ago. 
You may remember that in Faith's Hall of Fame that we know of is Hebrews chapter 11. and verse 25, it says this, among other things, about Moses. It says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses was wise enough and smart enough to understand that he could get some cheap thrills by living the way the world lived. But that's not where real meaning and purpose and satisfaction would come from. Those were temporary gratifications, Moses understood. But he rather chose to suffer with God's people because he knew what, how that would turn out in the long run. A man may be sitting in the middle of the street and he may have a lampshade on his head and he may be joyfully singing, don't worry, be happy. And yet on the inside, he can be unhappy and a miserable person. Or a man can be undergoing terrible pain or difficulty and still on the inside still be secure and a happy, fulfilled person. And you may be wondering, how could anyone go through what that poor person is going through and still be happy on the inside? And if you're asking that question, it's because you haven't read this book. But out of those four needs that I mentioned a moment ago, it is most common for people to neglect their spiritual needs. You know, we get hungry, and so that tells us that there are certain physical needs that we have. So we don't necessarily need a reminder. We don't need to put a memo in our phone to tell us, hey, it's time to eat. Our bodies will tell us that. But out of all the need, the basic needs that human being, every human being that's ever walked on this earth, if he's in his right mind, the easiest one that it is to neglect is our relationship to God, our spiritual needs. And that causes just widespread frustration and causes many people to, to miss the life that God designed us to have. I'm sure you know, if you notice that people are designed to be different from animals. If the thrust of a person's life is to just keep warm, keep his belly full, and remain sexually satisfied, then it's too bad that he wasn't a dog or a chicken or a horse because that's all that they want and that's all they are designed to do. That's the difference between animals and humans. Nothing more, nothing deeper, and nothing higher than that. But you and I, we're different. The Bible says that you were created in the very image of God himself. Genesis 1.26 says, you have a spiritual nature that has spiritual needs that you simply must not deny or else you will go through life with some degree of frustration. I hope you do until you find what C.S. Lewis has said is a God-sized hole in every one of us that only God himself can fill. In fact, you cannot... I don't believe you can completely deny that need. It's not natural. It is not normal to deny your need for God and a viable ongoing relationship with him. It is going against the basic grain of your human nature. You can stop drinking water, but you can't keep from getting thirsty. You can stop eating, but you can't keep from getting hungry. And, folks, I'm telling you, you cannot stop relating to God you, you can attempt to do that, but you can't stop from yearning for God because it's the most normal and natural thing in the world. I want to end with a passage that we started with, and that is a snippet of Paul's sermon in Athens on Mars Hill. Now, remember the context. He's talking to people who don't acknowledge the one true God. They're very religious, and so they have all of these altars built to false gods. And in order to make sure that they've kept their bases covered, they've got one altar over here that literally, we're not making this up, that is literally labeled 
to the unknown God. They want to make sure that they don't want to incur the wrath of some God that they haven't even thought of. And Paul found that a wonderful opening to his, his speech. And he says, that unknown God is the one that I'm declaring to you. And as he begins to describe the one God, the Jehovah God that created this universe and put everyone on this planet, he said this in verses 27 and 28. It's already been read. I want to leave this with you in your mind tonight so that they should seek the Lord. Here's the purpose of man on this planet, according to Paul, that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Let me stop and add That means that God is not playing some kind of celestial game of hide and seek. God isn't, while we're seeking after him, hiding behind a door somewhere. God, Paul says, is very easy to be found if only we will make the effort. And then he ends, he says, in him we live and move and have our very being. As also some of your own prophets have said, for we are his offspring. And if we were created in his image and we are his offspring, isn't it about time that you tried to find your father? Serving God and living for God does not make you strange. You yearn for God as easily and naturally as your body yearns for water and food. But man has been living subnormally for so long that he has come to think that normal is abnormal. And let me remind you, in case you have forgotten, that we are not the first generation that has everything turned around. Isaiah said, woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put dark for light and light for dark, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. In Isaiah's day, he was living in a society much like ours, where the normal, living the way God would have us to live within the framework of his will, was looked at as being strange and weird and abnormal. And that's where we are today. In our society, and I don't think anyone in the right mind would even dare to deny that. But it's time that we, we, we turn that picture around. And it begins with the committed lives of God's people. And it, com- it begins by us being able to, I think, more properly and in a more effective way communicate to the world what it is that their basic need really is. And that is a relationship with the Lord. And when you come to recognize and respond to your spiritual needs, which are normal and natural along with your other needs, then and only then does your life take on a new dimension, a new level of of satisfaction and a new fulfillment for the simple reason that that is the way you were designed. The simple solution to man's dilemma is summarized in James 4, 8. Here's what James says. And you could submit this to a committee and they might mess it up. But taken at face value, it makes perfect sense and is easy to understand. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that's what everybody needs to do today. It may be what some in this audience need to do tonight. Approach God with a sincere desire to be cleansed and to be purified in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we call you to tonight, while we stand and while we sing.